Um, today's reading is John 17. Um, so, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave out, gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which was which you, gave, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my, full jo- my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As I sent, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they will, that they may all be one, in, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love of God with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's stand again. I wonder how you may have answered that. What would it be that, when all's said and done, you'd want to be known for? I wonder if there's perhaps a disconnect between what you might sort of really want to answer to that as well and what your public sort of answer might be. For me, you know, the most honest answer might still be actually to be a rock star, but the ship sailed on that a very, very long time ago. Uh, most notably the fact I don't have enough talent uh, besides anything else. But to this point, Jesus is known for having made his father known. 
That's how he summarizes it earlier in John's Gospel. He's been seeking the Father's glory, not his own. And now as his death approaches, the event of the cross is looming, he asks that he would be glorified in his death. That he would be known above all else in the moments of his death. We see here in these first five verses, Jesus praying for himself. And what he asks is that he would be glorified. And it serves a little bit like a conversation you might have in your homes, where someone says something uh, which is not really for their good, but for everybody else's good. And you know that there's perhaps a little bit of a subtext underneath it. So perhaps when you hear somebody narrate for you that I've done five nappies already today, you know that that count is not for them. It's because there's maybe an expectation that uh, you might balance out that quota. Or actually one of the most frequent ones in my home is the black bin goes out on Wednesday. The black bin goes out tomorrow. The black bin goes out today. The black bin went out today. Or perhaps if you manage people, I've been so busy today, I haven't stopped all morning. Or when you begin to narrate why your toddler's thrown themselves on the floor, inconsolable, and why it is that you're not picking them up and smothering them with love, because actually there's not a legitimate reason. Sometimes we say things publicly that's not really so much for our own good as it is everybody else's. And that's what Jesus is doing here. I think in many ways his prayer being included by John is more for our good than Jesus's. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is when he'd come to the end of this sort of long section of his teaching that we've been looking at over the last few weeks, then he comes to this prayer and we transition towards this journey to the cross. He lifted his eyes to heaven, we're told, and said, Father, the hour has come. We've heard Jesus say numerous times his hour had not come. His hour was coming, but now his hour has come. What will happen to Jesus, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his rejection, his conviction, his death and resurrection, is his defining moment. And so he asks, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We should ask, shouldn't we, how does the cross glorify him? How is that possible? On the one hand, the cross seems to utterly shame Jesus. He seems to be a a total and abject defeat. But Jesus lays down his life in order to set us free. It brings glory to him when he rises. And secondly, it brings glory to him by showing the lengths that God would go to to save us. And why does he do it? Well, verse 2 gives us an indication there, doesn't it? To give eternal life to all whom you've given him. There's his purpose. To all whom you've given him, we read. We don't find Christ. Christ reveals himself because the Father has given you to him. You have not found him. He has revealed himself to you. This is eternal life, continues, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so there's a sense in which eternal life begins now for us. Though Jesus isn't speaking of a figurative eternal life, it really will be a physical, lasting, eternal life. There's a sense in which we can enter that now and be truly living in this moment. I glorified you 
on earth. Now, Father, glorify me. Jesus' earthly life was spent to glory the Father. And now the Father will glorify him. Glorify me as with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus' earthly life was marked by humility, but it will soon be revested with full glory. John has begun his gospel by talking about Jesus being the word who was with God in the beginning and was God himself and has come to earth and now he is soon to return. The route to true glory is seeking God's glory. That's what we find here. Jesus gave himself to this. And now he asked the Father would glorify him. Firstly, we see Jesus pray that he would be glorified. He's praying for himself. But I want to get you sort of thinking and and talking again. I want you to think about this question now. Where do you turn when you're tempted to give up? And I'll give you a few moments just to think about that again together. You know, sometimes the hardest thing for us is not understanding what God has called us to and the trials that we face. And here in these next few verses, we see what we're called to. And we see that we can find hope in Jesus, in the Father, holding us up. And the Spirit, too, that he's spoken about in the previous chapter We see here in verses 6 to 19 that Jesus prays for his disciples and he prays that they would stand 
strong. It's a great, uh, great quote from Yoda. It says, do or not do, there is no try. And the point here is not simply to try following Jesus, there is simply to do or to not do. We could split these few verses into three sections here. Verses 6 to 9 here, we see Jesus care for the disciples. In verses 10 to 13, we see Jesus handing the disciples back to the Father. And then in verses 14 to 19, we see Jesus' disciples in the world. So let's look at verses 6 to 9 there, and Jesus' care for the disciples. And this is looking back in the past. It's looking back on what Jesus has done. He says, I have manifested your name. The word there in in the original language is uh, made graspable your name. Just as John has begun the gospel by saying in chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. And it's the same phrase again. He has made God graspable. Before, God could not be imaged. That leaves us with a problem. How do you portray the unportrayable? How do you understand the unknowable? In the Old Testament, making an image of God is outlawed. In fact, it carries a curse. You can read of that in Deuteronomy 27. So what is God like then? How do we, creatures for whom everything has a form, has an image, how do we understand a God who doesn't have a form, who doesn't have an image? Well, one famous Uh, theologian of church history Anselm of Canterbury put it like this that God is that than which no greater than can be conceived his idea is that the best way to try to understand God is to say whatever is the best thing you can think of he's just that bit better than that and it's true but it's a deeply dissatisfying answer because you will feel like me you are no closer to knowing God no closer to understanding him What Jesus has done, on the other hand, is to put flesh and bones on God, to make him graspable for us, so that we can say that God looks like Jesus. He is, as the author to Hebrews puts it, the exact imprint of his nature. We can look to Jesus and know the God who was before somewhat unknowable. Jesus has made God graspable, not just in his being, but in what he's done. Look at what he's done here. I've given them the words you gave me. It's the word of God that births faith in Christ and new life in him. And then look at the response that his disciples have given. He says they've kept your word. They know that everything you've given me is from you. They've received them. They've believed that you've sent me. It's a very generous description, perhaps, actually, of the disciples. Actually, a scan through the Gospels reveals that their faith is rather unextraordinary to this point. It's a rather generous description of it. But Jesus considers it that they've kept his word, that they know everything has been given to Jesus from the Father, that they've received those words, that they believe them. So he says, I'm praying for them. That is the disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. See, salvation isn't universal. Not everybody will receive it. And so there's this urgency to actually respond. 
because there's a very real eternal judgment otherwise. Jesus, for our benefit, is saying nothing the Father doesn't know. He's not having to clue the Father into this. But we get to hear it because we need to know this. We need to be reminded of how Jesus has cared for his disciples. And so we see now Jesus handing the disciples back to the Father. He's thinking of the present. He's looking to what is about to happen. All mine are yours and yours are mine, he says. There's this unity between Father and Son and us and the Father and the Son. I'm glorified in them, he says. Now, how is that possible? How is Jesus glorified in us? Especially thinking about the disciples here who, like I say, have been rather unextraordinary in their performance. Well, think about this. Think about children. And you know, as parents, as family, as guardians, as teachers, as friends, that you're so proud of kids, even for little things. Think about riding a bike. You know, many of you even, in fact, will perhaps have a picture or a video of the first time a child has done that. And you'll be so proud of that. You'll show it off. You're so pleased for them. What you don't display, on the other hand, is the potentially hundreds of times that they failed. And say, oh, I'm so ashamed. Oh, this, this, these can't be my genes. No. You celebrate the wins. You celebrate when they can do it. And you think nothing of the journey to get there. And yet, why is it that we somehow can do that with children, but we find it so hard to believe that God would do that for us? I'm glorified in them. God sees you in just the same way, in those little moments of obedience, in those little moments of faith. I'm no longer in the world, he says, and I'm coming to you. And so we ask, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And there's the problem, isn't it, that Jesus spells out. When he's not there, will they be able to keep it up? And that's a fairly legitimate concern, you would think. Their performance has been fairly poor. And yet, look at this truth in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them. I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost. There's this idea in theology called the perseverance of the saints the idea is that those that are Christ's always make it to the end somehow some way you may stumble you may be a slow learner you may be very ordinary but you make it to the finish line as the godfather puts it every time I think I'm out they pull me back in And believers find that somehow by God's grace, every time you think you might be out, he pulls you back in. And here we see how that happens, how that concept really happens in real life. That it's not about the perseverance of the saint, but the perseverance of God's grace for the saint. One way we could put it is uh, one of my most uh, treasured possessions is... um, little letter that I received when I first became a Christian as a 14 year old and a pastor at the time sat down and uh, put the effort to, to writing out a note and, and some of the ink and everything is sort of smudged now it's about 20 years old but he reflects a little bit here and I keep this in my bible and I read it from time to time to encourage me 
says this, my biggest fear was that I wouldn't be able to keep up being a Christian. I now realize it wasn't about me keeping anything up. Jesus was keeping me up. I pass that on as an encouragement to you. What we find is that Jesus is keeping us up. He has been caring for them. He hands the disciples now over to the Father to continue doing so. Somehow, one way or other, we make it to the finish line. Not because of the perseverance of our faith, but because of the perseverance of God's grace to us. Holy Father, keep them in your name, he asks, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And here Jesus addresses maybe the greatest lie ever told. It's a great line in the film The Usual Suspects. Kaiser Soze, the great villain. We don't really realise that until right at the very end, and that's ruined the film if you've never seen it before, so sorry. Uh, but he says the greatest lie the devil ever told was that he doesn't exist. And that is indeed a good lie. It pervades. But I wonder if actually the greatest lie of all is that you will find better joy outside of God. That to find God, you must give up on finding joy. And yet Jesus asks here that they would be kept in the Father's name so that they might receive joy. God wants you happy. And then verses 14 to 19 here, we see Jesus' disciples in the world. We see Jesus looking to the future, looking at what will happen. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. The world hates the disciples, because we're not of the world. Because holding to God's word is by nature to live counter-culturally. And so here's the solution that Jesus offers here. Verse 15, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The answer of the problem of living in a world where you're living counterculturally, where the world does not love you because you know the Father, is not to push eject on the world, and it's not to live without the culture in a sort of subculture. It's not to retreat to a commune, but it's to live distinctly within the culture. Why? Why is that so? Why does this matter? Well, you know, to think that the answer to the problem is to push eject from the culture is to presume that your problem is, one, all about harmful influences outside and around you. And secondly, it's to presume that you're not your biggest problem. It is utterly, utterly delusional. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. You could be in a white room listening to Hill songs 24-7, taking Calvin's Institutes by IV, you will find a way to sin. It's why the monastery has failed spectacularly to reform those trying to flee from deviance. It's a reality we know all too well. Red Hot Chili Peppers song, Dark Necessities. You don't know my mind. You don't know my kind. Dark necessities are part of my design. It imagines that maybe there are just some people who just feel that much worse than others, but the reality is there isn't. We all really 
And yet God hasn't designed us that way, but sin has corrupted our design in that way for each and every one of us. There's not just some who experience this. We all do, if we're honest. It's that we all possess a part of this. That we all possess what psychoanalysts call the shadow self. The part of us we don't want to always admit is there. The part of us that finds it all too natural to do what we know we shouldn't do. You cannot hope to master that side of yourself if you're unwilling to name it and to own it. So Jesus reminds us again a second time that we're not of the world. He asks instead, sanctify them, set them apart for noble use. The idea is like best china, set apart for your best use there. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The world says the opposite. The world says the truth is not as important as feelings. The world says truth should change for feelings. And it says that truth is personal, it's relative, it's subjective. The gospel disagrees. The gospel says that actually truth is first, feelings second. It says that feelings ought to change for truth. It says that truth is objective. It's true for everyone. It's true everywhere. And it says that the gospel itself is that truth. Jesus, earlier on in John's gospel, chapter 14, says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It says in chapter 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the gospel then is true, it is the most important thing. And it should reshape everything else. It cannot and does not accommodate the status quo or cultural norms. As C.S. Lewis put it, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free in knowing Jesus. And then look at this mission that Jesus gives, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. We are all on mission in the world to reveal God. And yet, how can we hope to do that? Verse 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus gives himself over so that we can be set apart for the call of he gives us do or not do but there is no try want to get you thinking just one last time before we come to the last few verses here of this passage and i want you to think about what do we need to make it over the line and i'll give you a few minutes just to think about that together
we've seen Jesus pray for himself. And he's asked that he be glorified. We've seen him pray for his disciples there, that they would stand strong. And then lastly, we see him pray for all Christians that the world would know. What do we need to make it over the line? I wonder if you've come across this um, picture here. This is of the Brownlow brothers, and you'll perhaps know the story there. Alistair helping his brother Johnny cross the finish line at the end, sacrificing his own sort of chances at a gold medal in order to help his brother over the line in a moment where he needed to be carried over the finish line. Jesus is our good big brother, and he prays for what he knows we really need, for unity, for proximity, and for an intimacy with God. He says here, I don't ask for these, that's his disciples who are there only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, those all, all Christians ever since. And think about that reality, that in the run-up to his brutal death on the cross, Jesus' focus is on his disciples there, but not only that, on future disciples, that they would endure. And so he asks for a unity, that we would be one, for a proximity, that we'd be with him, and thirdly, for an intimacy, that we would have God's love. Verses 21 to 23, we see that request for unity. Jesus prays that we, his people, would be united to God and to each other. That they may all be one, he says. That they may also may be in us. The key to being united together is being united to God. And God doesn't save us so that he can have community with us. He's not spent all these sort of millennia in a sort of lonely existence and then finally decides, oh, actually, it might be nice to have some community around here. It might be nice to have some people come over. He saves us to invite us into the loving community of the Trinity that he has always enjoyed and had. It's a call for unity. Secondly, there's a call for proximity. Look at verse 24. Jesus prays that we as people would be able to be with him where he is. I desire they also may be with me where I am, to see my glory you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, salvation is incomplete. It's not fully realized. It's not fully experienced until us and God dwell in the same space. It's one of the predominant narratives of the whole of the scriptures. We see it from the Garden of Eden to the New Earth. We see in Genesis God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That we as humanity are made to dwell with God. We see that sin, that rebellion against God, has seen us separated from God. The Lord God sent Adam and Eve from the garden, we're told, in Genesis 3. that He drove out the man. And yet we see God promise in Leviticus 26, I'll make my dwelling, my tabernacle, among you. I'll walk among you. Same language of Genesis. And be your God. God promises to dwell with us again. And we see the scriptures concluding in Revelation 21 with Jesus returning. And it being said, behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We see that promise of God's presence realized in Jesus. 
And then lastly, we see this request for intimacy. Jesus prays that we, his people, would receive and feel the same love that the Father has given him. This is verse 26. The love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. He is loving us just because. To follow Christ is to enter the most utterly imbalanced relationship where God continually outloves and outgives us. Where I think we might be familiar with the details and the narrative of the story of the cross. What we have here. And what we need reminding of so often is what God is doing in all of this. The sort of behind the scenes, the what happened when of it. And here we get that in this prayer. We realise that Jesus is not some powerless victim to feel sorry for. He's not a mere martyr to write up an obituary for. The cross is his glory. And we see a prayer that's an example for us. That as we face the battle to be in the world, but not of it, we can look to God in prayer for strength. That we have in Jesus a brother who will carry us over the line too. Where we stumble and falter and where we feel as though the legs are gone and we just can't get up. We have a good elder brother, Jesus, who has been caring for us and will care for us and will see us over the line. So in a few moments, we'll share communion together. Hopefully as you came in, you've got one of the sort of we travel cup uh, things with the two bits therein. If you you haven't, then, then Jacob might be able to get one to you. As Jesus sat with his disciples on that Thursday evening, they shared the Passover meal. It's a meal that remembered God's rescue of his people from Egypt, from slavery and oppression, of being spared from the angel of death as it passed through Egypt, and God's judgment passing over the homes covered by the blood of a lamb. Previous evening here, Jesus had said that the bread and the wine in that meal represented his body and his blood, that what the Passover had looked towards would be fulfilled in him. That undoubtedly did not make sense to the disciples until after he was raised. But on Good Friday, we see Jesus' body broken and blood poured out for us. We've read of what Jesus' death was to achieve. So let's take a moment now just to ask that we would find in these symbols, which are exactly that, symbols. There's nothing special about them. There's no magic. They remain symbols. They don't change. They are just a wafer and just juice. But that we would find fresh grace in them. That the Holy Spirit would help us to lay hold of Jesus' grace again. That we would feel and experience what we've heard Let me pray for us briefly as we approach this meal. Saviour of the world, what have you done to deserve this? And what have we done to deserve you? Strung up between criminals, cursed and spat upon, you wait for death and look for us. For us whose sin has crucified you. To the mystery of undeserved suffering, you bring the deeper mystery of unmerited love. 
Forgive us for not knowing what we've done. Open our eyes to see what you are doing now. As through wooden nails, you disarm our depravity and transform us by your grace.